1: My name is Polly Hammond, and you are listening to Uncorked, the Italian wine podcast series about all things marketing and communication. Join me each week for candid conversations with experts from within and beyond the wine world as we explore what it takes to build a profitable business in today's constantly shifting environment. Today we're joined by the multi-talented Miss Felicity Carter, a respected journalist, editor, and all-around answer seeker. Felicity chats with me today about the ins and outs of publishing, why the editing process is crucial to proper journalism, and how wineries can use tried and tested writing techniques to improve following, loyalty, and sales. From feedback to Freitag, we're talking good stories and good writing. Let's get into it. Good morning, Felicity Carter, one of my very favorite people in... In the world, not just in wine. Um, one of my very favorite people. Thank you for joining me today. Good morning, Polly. It's always
2: a pleasure to talk to you because you're one of my favorite people.
1: Well, we Antipodeans have to stick together. That's, That's really That's what it is, <laughs> especially in wine. Um, I was thinking when I was writing the intro for this that, like, everyone knows you. I feel like everyone knows um, Felicity and what you do and what you've done. But um, actually you have, you have done a lot of shit that is not sort of wine trade related. And that is going to tie into some of the things that I want to talk about today. So I want to start with this big question. Tell me a little bit about what you did in the writing and journalism world in advertising and marketing before you got sucked into wine.
2: Oh, well, so I tried very hard to be a, um, to be a performer. I trained originally as a classical singer, but the fly in the ointment, the the crick in the plan was that I wasn't good enough. And so um, I, I found myself I found myself in my late twenties with a day job, which was writing brochures for a wine company, and I suddenly realised it was my real job. It wasn't my day job at all. So um, I went into advertising as a copywriter. Uh, I went and worked in a blue chip agency. We had really big clients, Mastercard, Qantas, people like that. Um, And I learned I learned the dark arts of persuasion through through copywriting, but I didn't really enjoy people telling me how to use my creativity and um, you know what happens is everything is done by committee so you write something and then a whole bunch of lawyers and account people come along and completely rewrite it into nothing. So I went back to university. I did postgraduate work in journalism Um, particularly after September 11, I was really interested in foreign affairs and I graduated and discovered that there were to my horror that there were no jobs being offered to mature age students who couldn't speak Chinese, Russian or Arabic, that the the, um, foreign correspondence was just uh, not going to happen. So um, I basically did lots of things. I I worked as a freelancer so I worked for newspapers, I worked for magazines, I did general feature writing, I did a lot of science and medical reporting, um, because I'd done some science at university, and uh, and then I, I did some wine writing as well. So and uh, and in that period, I also wrote a couple of books, and um, I ended up doing book editing too. So I've had quite a lot of experience across a range of media. Book editing. Yes, hmm. we had a um, uh, when I worked at Miningers, we had an absolutely sensationally talented sub-editor who uh, was in town because his wife was teaching at the international school here. I've never worked such an absolutely top-class professional. I used to get emails from him at 3 o'clock in the morning thinking, you know, saying, here's why I have rendered this Russian name in English like this. Here's my reasoning. And he would write me a long email. Um, but he went back to the States with his wife and um, became the CEO of a major romance book house. <laughs> so a few years ago, he wrote to me, he said, we're, we're just overwhelmed with work. Can you, can you edit some of our books? So for a while I did, I used to edit romance books while I was in airports. You edited romance novels. I, did. Uh, I, I mean, I can't help but think
1: about, we laughingly call the back of late you know, back of wine bottle labels, romance. And a lot of the content that we write for websites, we describe as the romance language on it. I mean, is there anything when you look at the writing that we do in uh, in our wine world that reminds you of your romance novels and editing? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> they Absolutely nothing. That means no. we're failing because holy shit, romance novels sell like
2: hotcakes.
1: Maybe they we do. need to. They do well,
2: the the so like most people I, you know i i don't actually read many romance novels myself and so i wasn't sure how i would approach it but when you when you do it it's it's like any other writing is there clarity do you understand what's going on is there some sort of you know passion you know written into it is it do you get sucked into the characters and so on um and that's true whether you're editing crime or romance or thriller or or literary books and so what you often see in wine writing is you see uh, you see two sort of problems one is that often it's didactic um, somebody is writing to educate the reader most readers don't actually want to be educated <laughs> most people are not sitting around thinking hmm today I would really like to know about the soil in a random area of Spain where can I get an article about that and
1: most people actually get really pissed off at the notion that we're trying to educate them like they may yeah. not that this is what we notice in in our user feedback that they may not express it as I'm pissed off because you're trying to educate me. But there's sort of this tacit abrasion that they're like, you know, if you're trying to educate me, the implication is I am stupid or do not know enough. And that, that that's just very uncomfortable for a lot of people.
2: Yeah. And most of us, you know, most of us when we in our own spare time are not reading to, you know, so that we can study up for an exam. And a lot of, a lot of wine writing is written as though, you know, you're, you're going to study it at the end and take a test. Um, lots of information that's completely unnecessary or information that's given and then the, the reason that you're telling somebody isn't there. So I get a lot of wine articles sent to me and somewhere in the wine notes, some people say, and this is on, uh, you know, slate soil. And I always go, so what does that mean? What does that mean for the final wine? What does that mean for the taste of the final wine? Why does somebody need to know that this is grown on a slate soil? And quite often they can't tell me, in which case I just strike it out. It means it's it's not necessary. So is there a big difference between the
1: marketing copywriting that you did when you were, you know, like early out of postgrad compared to the, would it be considered creative writing
2: that, that you work in now? Yeah, there's a big difference. So the big difference is is what are you writing it for, and uh, who is your audience? So when you're doing marketing copywriting of any sort or advertising copywriting, your your goal is very simple: it's to sell. You are there to persuade somebody to buy something, and that's the game. Um, I've got something to sell. You've got money in your pocket. I want the money, and nobody reads advertising copy for entertainment or for um, for educational purposes. They don't want to read it, right? They want to they want to just Click off or whatever. So you've got you've got seconds to grab their attention and tell them why they need to hand you money. Now, when you're writing an article, you're not doing that at all. You're not there to sell them. Um, and if you are there to sell them, then you're being unethical. Um, you're you're there to entertain them. You're there to inform them, or you know, or, or for some other reason.
1: So, in the past few months. I noticed that at Picks you've rolled out with some super interesting articles, like not typical articles at all. You have sent wine to Antarctica. Most recently, you have made celebrity wine. These are straight up entertaining, you know, delightful, informative, not not educational, uh, you know, except that it just broadens our worldview. So. How do you come up with the ideas for what kind of are are crazy off the wall articles in our wine world? Like, is that do you have the idea and you go out and you find the journalists for it or do journalists pitch ideas to you? What does that process look like?
2: Both. So in the case of the celebrity wine, that was an idea that I came up with ages and ages ago, um, that it would be cool to look at how wines are, you know, how you can actually commission your own wine and and make your own wine. So in that case, I went out to a writer who's not a wine writer. He's he's a wine and spirits writer. Um, and, And I... I briefed him, I briefed him on, you know, how you find a bulk wine producer and so on. And those articles aren't um, entertaining by accident. We actually did, you know, many, many, many emails back and forth about how we would structure it and, and how we would do it to get that. In the case of the Antarctica one, David is a a science writer for the New Yorker and he's a like he's a extraordinary writer. He's he's got books out there that have been bestsellers and stuff. So when I found out he was going to Antarctica, he was he was just saying I'm going to be away for a few months, I actually immediately said, great, can you take some weight to Antarctica and do a, uh, do a tasting? And he said, oh, I'm not actually sure that I can because we've got you know weight limitations that are really strict and so on. And I was like, David, please, <laughs> we smuggle someone to Antarctica. It took, a, it took a lot of back and forth. And then, and then again, you know, that is, a, that is a New Yorker level article. But again, when that came in, it came in at 4,600 words. We had a process of negotiation about what we're going to throw out and stuff. We did about five rounds. So when it was published, how many words was it? Two and a half thousand, which is holy cool shit, for us. yeah. Um, so, so sometimes I come up with ideas, like I've got a whole lot of ideas I've found out to people. Um, and sometimes people come to me with ideas. The, the issue often is that, um, wine writing. If, if you've done it for a very long time, it's like anything. You become a specialist. And so you, you start to see the world like people inside that specialty do. And sometimes it can be quite hard to see the world in a very different way. And that's where sometimes um, I go to writers who are outside the wine world because they don't have those same um those same needs that wine writers have got to to talk about <laughs> soils and trellising and so on.
1: Yeah, and just our our habits and our patterns and our interests. I mean I, I think we all notice that that we can become really insular in what we know and what we fall back to. So okay, I'm really curious about this because I come from a a design background and as I've gotten older, you know, seniority that's led to creative direction. And in creative direction, the process is really, you know, it's like the unsung or unspoken partner in creating something. You're not ever going to get the credit for going in and taking it from, you know, an idea that has some some great um, nuggets, you know, or like kernels and and turning it into something that is the final product. Is that the same thing for
2: your editor role? It certainly is. It's something that we talk about a lot. I have a very close friend of mine who is a um chief executive editor of a major publishing house in Australia. And she she turns out, you know, award winning books and bestsellers and stuff. And every time she gets another award, or one of her authors gets an award, she's always like, I wrote that <laughs> that wouldn't have existed without me. That was my idea. But of course, you know, you can never you can never publicly take credit for for somebody else. Why not though? Because I mean in in design,
1: you know, we recently had the whole thing where Coinbase went out and said, "Oh, this particular ad could never have been produced by an agency. This was just so close to the heart of what we did." And the agency director actually said, "Really? Because here's page 18 of the slide deck we presented to you." <laughs> and this this was I mean it was a massive public kerfuffle. Is this the sort of thing where we need to be looking at different kinds of attribution, you know, different names in in the title and in the credits? Like, how does that
2: work? It's actually beginning to happen a little bit in journalism where um, people are now starting to put at the bottom, you know, this was edited by or extra reporting by. There's a lot more. There is gradually a lot more transparency about how the process happens. Um, sometimes as a form of protection, you know, journalists get a lot of um a lot of blowback on on social media, sometimes because of the headline, um, and of course they don't write the headline; they have nothing to do with it. So, um, because of social media, gradually there is a turn towards this crediting other people that worked on the um, on the piece. But it's never been it's never been traditional that the role of the the editor and and the art director and so on is to stay in the background to just make sure everything looks professional and uh, and and to live with the fact that you won't get credit for it.
1: You sit around with all of your colleagues, you come up with ideas, and you may or you may not explore it. Is an idea creditable?
2: Oh, that's a really interesting question. So so the, the thing has always been that ideas aren't copyright. If you come up with an idea and you blab it to somebody else and somebody takes the idea and they run with it, well, more fool you, you should have said it because you can't do anything about that. Um, and, you know, we've all done it. We've all sat there and, and you know, um, said things out loud that somebody else has taken and done something with. And unfortunately, all you can learn is... Um, Keep your mouth shut. So ideas have never been copyright. Um, It's the execution of the idea that is patented and copyrightable, and I don't see that changing.
1: Because I mean, I don't know. I kind of look at you know. Okay, so you and I are of an age, and neither of us are twenty two. I kind of look at younger people coming up where they are just brought up in this era of attribution, and I sort of wonder are. Is their expectation or their willingness to actually attribute ideas going to end up being better than ours?
2: Have been well I actually I so first of all I actually think it's the other way around I'm seeing I'm seeing younger people um, taking ideas and taking things because of they've grown up in a world of Wikipedia and and Google where you know information is just freely out there and, and you can use it I think that's a really serious problem is is the lack of attribution of, of intellectual property um, you could be right the, the problem always with with industries legacy industries like publishing is that they they um, you know, they move at the speed of granite. Um, you know, everyone <laughs> can see that you need to do something or that something should be done. Do you actually go and do it? No, you don't. It happens at a very glacial pace. So kind of like wine.
1: So really, I'm like, that just means that wine publishing is the slowest snail we've ever encountered um in <laughs> the batch. That actually that's a really good segue because I know that about what was it, six weeks ago, eight weeks ago you started your new Substack, which is the Editrix. And I'll put a link to that in the description. Um, This, for me, knowing you personally, but also knowing the role that you play in wine, I thought this was super
2: interesting. So sort of first question, why Substack? oh okay so so the new the new publishing kid in town that everybody is interested in is newsletters so um social media is actually getting less traction and um and you know if you want to be successful in social media you have to post relentlessly and you have to start you know paying for advertising and stuff newsletters have turned out to be a godsend for many many journalists who now have the freedom to write what they want um, and build their own fan base at, at a really low cost so what I've done with Editrix, and when I say what I've done with what I'm planning to do, there's not a lot of content there at the moment, is um I think that young writers and journalists are in a really bad place at the moment. So going into media is like standing on the deck of the Titanic. You're always waiting to be laid off or fired or you know, if you're lucky enough to get a job. And so there's lots and lots of people, and certainly in wine, who have never been anything other than freelancers. They've never worked inside the media and they've never worked with an editor. They've never been train. I mean, there's lots of people that do journalism training, but that only just gives you an idea of how you should approach things. You need opportunities and you need to go and try new techniques and stuff. And so there's a whole generation of people who don't know some basics about how you put an article together. And so what I thought I'd do is instead of there's lots of there's lots of information around for people to tell them how to pitch and how to make sure they're being paid properly and um and, and what makes a good pitch and stuff. And I thought well what I'll do is I'll just put the nuts and bolts of how you construct an article or a paper or whatever and put them in. All the all the little things that people don't know about, like anecdotal leads. Um, what are you, you know, what's what's defamation, what's um, Uh, you know, how do you deal with five interviewees in a, in an interview when they're all saying the same thing? What happens when you've got an interviewee who says things that are factually incorrect, you know, all those sorts of things. So that's the idea.
1: Again, going back to the notion of creative direction. I mean, I can always look at something that's submitted to me and generally tell, is this a person who's had any formal training? Uh, is this a person who? is receptive to feedback? Um, You know, like, do I think from the tenor of the conversation, which may be live or it may be via email, that this person is going to hear and receive feedback well? Um, And I I don't want to, I mean, like, I'm not trained in marketing. I I don't want to say that you have to have formal training to be good at it, but I do kind of wonder about this notion of the feedback loop is that something that you're finding in a world where online content is
2: just you know oh, yeah. it surrounds us yeah that's a that's a really big problem it's a huge problem so when i so when i went into media which is which is 20 years ago now there's no there's no nice way there is no nice way when people have poured their heart and soul into Design or, or writing or whatever um, to make them feel good about the fact that you're saying this isn't what we need it has to change there's, n- there's no there's no nice way to do it and so the first few times that somebody comes in and they slash your copy to ribbons or something you, you feel like you feel like your skin has been flayed off but eventually what happens the professional route is eventually you think to yourself well one it's not personal and be my goodness my piece is actually better um, and eventually if you're around long enough you can get really lazy and you think well you know the sub-editor will fix it or the editor will fix it I don't need to put that extra layer on it. But what I'm finding, and I found in the last sort of five to 10 years, is lots of people who have become very successful writers without ever being edited. And so the first time that they come across my pen where I start to say, well, you know, this has to be rearranged or this opening doesn't work, people get furious. They get really, really angry. And unfortunately, there's no, there's no nice way of, there's no nice way of saying, um, look, there's lots of good stuff in the piece, but I have to reorganise it. Um, some people really, some people, it's a huge relief. They knew something wasn't working and somebody has finally come along and said, this this is how you do it. Um, but there's lots, the, the problem really is, is people who have become established writers who get very angry at their work being messed with. It doesn't happen all the time, but it happens a couple of times.
1: I'm here, I'm in my house, you know, toddling on along. I've got no journalistic training, but I want to submit an article or I want to be a better writer. Can I hire? Uh, freelance
2: editor? Well, it depends on what they're writing. So, you know, the the thing which wine writers don't do, which I wish they would do, is there's lots and lots of self-help groups for writers. There's lots and lots of online writers' groups where people act as what they call beta readers for one another, um, where they'll read each other's work and they will critique it. And actually the... the, The act of critiquing somebody else's work will make you a better writer faster than almost anything else. When you have to sit there and go, hmm, this isn't really working, let me let me force myself to analyse why it's not working and then communicate that. So first of all, I would never say to somebody, hire an editor, um, I'd say go and find a team of of beta readers out there and they're all online. Where it is really important to do it and people don't, unfortunately, is when you get into self-publishing. A lot of people, a lot of um, executives and business people want to self-publish their own book for for their credibility. Um, That's when they need to hire an editor. A lot of people want to get into self-publishing for their fiction. And that's when you really need a proofreader and editor. But of course, a lot of people can't afford it. I I know that in the past,
1: I've, sat through presentations that you've done that have to do very specifically with winery storytelling. What are the pitfalls that you're seeing common in wine communication or wine
2: storytelling? Oh, well, I think there's really two. Um, the first one is that particularly in the old world, it doesn't affect people in the new world so much, but in the old world, people are very guarded about telling the real story. So if you look at um, people, how they, they tell their histories of over the last 140 years, it's incredibly obvious that they've left out some really key moments of their history. They won't talk about what Phylloxera did to them. They won't talk about what the First World War did to them. They won't talk about how, you know, half the family died in the Second World War. All of those, they they simply they simply fail to discuss that. Um, and so they will present their trajectory as one long slog into the sunny, uplit lands of success and glory. Um, where the story would actually be really interesting if maybe they did mention the Banish civil war or, or something like that, but they won't. Um, so that's that's problem number one. Um, and problem number two is a sort of more complicated problem, which is that it's what I think of as narrative template. So we all have these these cliches or narrative templates in in any in any profession um, that people that people automatically to. So the narrative template in wine is this is a family owned winery, our wine is made in the vineyard, um, you know, we make our wine with passion, you know, blah, 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 blah. And if you say story, that's almost automatically what people will tell you. And that's to-
1: terrible. It's it's the the language version of the hands with grapes. Yeah, it's just just exactly. It's <laughs> the
2: language version of and moving people past that is really scary and difficult because um, that story has become the industry standard. So if you try and say to people, "Okay, let's let's move on, let's let's go into something else," it's it's quite frightening because you're asking them to break the thing that they know is the safe response. And most most people actually can't do it um, without professional help, without somebody coming in and saying, "Well, hang on, you haven't mentioned." this? Why don't you mention this? And often often we're poor witnesses to our own lives. Sometimes what we we take for granted about our own life and we think isn't interesting to our own life, we just leave out of the story. And actually, maybe it's extremely interesting, but you need somebody else to come in and say, hey, that's fascinating. Why don't you talk about that? Is it
1: kind of keeping up with the Joneses in a way, though, where brands they don't want to show their foibles or they don't want to talk about things that have failed. I mean, I notice in wine, like if we're just going to get really into it, I noticed that with artists, artists have ego. And then you have wine and wine has ego. You know, we're so afraid to ever talk about things that go wrong because we think that it's going to diminish us in front yeah. of our competition and it's going to diminish us in front of our consumers. When in fact, good storytelling is rife with conflict. I mean, it's always a story of how we overcome things that, by our own guilt or omission, right, our our own ignorance, that it got in our way. Um, and, and I deal with this with wine brands all the time, the willingness to be
2: open about the things that went wrong, and mm-hmm. they just won't do it. It's also partly the rise of marketing. So the, the mantra of marketing is always to be positive, that you don't want anything that's negative attached to your brand. And that automatically means any sort of granular storytelling is, is off the board. Um, unfortunately. I I'm I, not that marketer, by the way. Yeah, Just the, so you know. <laughs> like, so over the years I tell people, you know, every good story, for it to be a story, it has to have conflict in there somewhere. So over the years, I used to say to people, you know, you've got to have conflict in a story. And everybody automatically thought that I meant you know, dirt. Um, you know, and people were really personal angry. conflict. Yeah, or or just sort of you know bad things. There needs to be bad yeah. things in there. And A lot of people actually, said to me, look. I went into wine because of it. I don't want to sort of do investigative journalism or dick And I was like, no, no, no. You know, somebody, somebody up against a devastating hailstorm, man against nature is a is a conflict. You know that. anyway, so I've dropped the whole a story into conflict. And now what I say to people is. A good story needs a moment of transformation. And now, now people go, oh, yeah, I can see that. So um, that's, that's my new thing. Does this story have a moment of transformation? No. Well, then you have an anecdote.
1: Social media is an interesting one for me that comes up in this space of storytelling and marketing and authenticity and all of this stuff because I think that there's an ability, there's a good way to use social media where you can have little micro stories. You know, you're telling the little stories of your day. You're presenting the little conflicts or the little joys or the little transformations, whatever it might be. Um, I actually look at it and say, Is there space for people who are not great big storytellers to actually use these little stories, you know, almost like serialized versions of the transformation or the conflict? Can we start using social media more positively in a storytelling way is my question.
2: The the rules of storytelling are the same, regardless of which media you're using, you must have a conflict, a moment of transformation. There must the, the the character at the beginning must be a different character by the end of the story, um, and and that's it. And whether you're doing you know Instagram or whether you're doing Facebook or whether you're doing Twitter or whether you're writing a novel, those that that has to be the thing that that person the person changes somehow through the story.
1: So when we're working on storytelling with our clients, we will often use the seven. Story archetypes. And the one in particular that we tend to fall back on, which I think that I will enjoy you grilling me or debating me on this one, is we will often refer to the hero's journey because it's one that a lot of people can sink their teeth into. It's very easily um, analogous to what they see, read, you know, listen to. These seven story archetypes is this something that can apply to wine?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you can see this in the biodynamic conversation. They use too much, I think, because they all do it. They use the Cinderella archetype. Um it goes like this. It goes, I started with this property and the soil was dead. There were no insects, there were no birds, the place was just, you know, a blast of wasteland. And then I, you know, Cinderella in the ashes. And then I applied you know, biodynamics, and then the prince came. And now there are birds, there are insects, the soil is full of life. Um, that is a classic Cinderella story. I, I, and I think that- if Is that I,
1: part of the reason that they're they're kicking our ass? Do they have a better story? They've actually found a better
2: story than a lot of traditional line has? No, Cinderella is actually one of the most- the oldest stories in the world. It's, it's been recorded back for many, many centuries and it's been found as far away as China. It's deeply hooks into the human psyche. There's a very, very powerful story. Now, I think if you're a biodynamic person, unfortunately, everybody else is using the Cinderella story and you should try something different. Um, but yes, it's a very powerful story to tell. And, and it's got the transformation. It's got the quality of transformation, which is we went from this state to this state and that's a powerful story.
1: So uh, I don't know if you've done a lot of research on YouTube or video production, but I'm absolutely fascinated by how this works. And um, good YouTubers, and and what I mean by that is YouTubers with with high production value, with high follower numbers, with regularly scheduled programming, often you'll have someone standing in front of the camera presenting it, but it has been written by another person. What I'm really curious about is... Are we, for want of a better word, are we losing good writers to other content formats? Because if I was, if I was a young person writing right now, or if I was looking at it coming up in storytelling, I would probably not be doing it in,
2: in the written word. Yeah, no, no, it's very clear. It's something I've talked about um, to colleagues that, and it was very clear in the pandemic that a lot of very talented writers actually exited the business. They discovered that they could make more money on Instagram, on doing wine tastings on Instagram, and they made a, a calculated um, financial decision, which is, it takes me this. I'm talking about wine writing here, but I'm sure it happened in other things too. It, you know, it takes me this long to write a piece, or I could do an Instagram tasting and make five times the money. So, um, I, you know, I, I get asked all the time, you know, what advice would I give to somebody who wanted to be a writer? And my advice is, don't. It, it's it's really such a um, such a terrible, terrible industry at the moment but if you if you're a natural storyteller and you can do it with YouTube or, you know, whatever, go and do that.
1: But then at the same time, I look at it and um, I, I think about people who write journals, you know, the we're running out of written collateral. I mean, I think what's going to happen 100, 200 years from now, assuming that climate change doesn't knock us all off, that someone looks back and everything that we've produced is lost because it was all e-versions and soft copy and digital. Like, is there a space? I just, I guess I want to be hopeful and believe that there is room for a writer coming up who they want to actually go back to producing books. I mean, I I look at my kids. So my kids are 19 and 20 and you know what? They don't read on Kindle. They actually buy books all over the place in Europe. People still buy books Are we, are we just like undervaluing that, you know what, books still exist and book readers are still a huge part of our culture?
2: I think there's a huge number of issues in what you've just raised. So, first of all, the, the question of digitalisation. This is actually something that keeps archivists and museums and historians up at night. From They say that um, we will have a better understanding of the politics of the 1970s than we will of the politics of right now because so much of what is being done, decisions are being made, things are being done electronically electronically. And, uh, you can, you can password protect it. You can hide it. You can do all sorts of things. You can wipe it. Um, and how do you digitally archive, you know, the sum of what humans are doing at the moment? We, we might actually be plunging ourselves into a dark age. If, if our servers go down, nobody will know what happened historically from the 1990s on. So there's, there's that. And this is a, this is something that, that, you know, hugely occupies lots, lots of people. As for the written word, um, yes, I mean, there's always, there's always a space for the talented and the persistent, always. And more people are writing books, physical books now than ever before in history. So we're not going to lose that. Um, I think though, if you look at the economics of publishing, what's happening certainly in the English speaking world, though less less in Europe because of uh, because of the way their laws are structured, is that publishing now has become a, a winner-take all enterprise, where if you're a brand name uh, if you're Stephen King um, or in the UK, the children's writer, David Walliam, you can write as many books as you like and they will be published and they will be put, you know, face first in the window and on the tables in the bookshop. If you're anybody else that doesn't hasn't established a brand, you either have to have a, an instant fluky breakout success or you're going to slide into oblivion. And that's because of the way the economics of publishing are working. Um, Is that just publishing though? I think that we could argue that,
1: especially in America, that's just how big brands dominate. I mean, this comes you and I have discussed Naomi Klein's no logo, right? That is something that she talks about in that that the big brands, one of their goals is to actually dominate that, you know, like mind share, that awareness. The big brands are investing heavily to make certain that they are always at the forefront of our thoughts and we actually talk about this in wine so this is a good question can a good story overcome a saturated market is it that a good story needs the channel so like if you're a wine brand and you have a good story do you need good PR to get it out there
2: okay so this is a really complicated thing as well so um Let's, let's just go back to publishing for a second. Why is it that um, publishing is becoming more and more of a desert in the English-speaking world and it's, it's actually not in other parts of the world? And it comes down to a simple economic decision that was taken in the 1990s, which in places like the UK, um, they, they said you can discount books if you want. They never said that on the continent, you can't discount books here, um, you have to sell them for their full price. And what meant that meant was that um you could start using books as loss leaders. So when Harry Potter came out, lots and lots of supermarkets began to stock Harry Potter and sell it at a loss because they knew it would bring people in and they would they would buy other things. So instantly what that meant was that in order to make money from your best sellers, from the things that should have made you the most amount of money, you had to start having volume. Um and so you know, you're either a bestseller or Forget it. Now that didn't happen in the content They don't allow you to discount, and as a result, they have a much healthier um, ecosystem of writers. So let's let's talk about how that works in other areas with wine. It's all about you know we like to think it's about the quality of the wine and so on. But there's a lot of great books out there that nobody are reading because they don't know about them. It's about the distribution channel that you've got, and so if you've got a good story that will appeal to a distributor, then Great. Right. So it's, it's who, whose story is it? You know, who, who is it that you're telling the story to? And this, this comes down to the audience. So if you're telling a great story to the natural wine crowd, they will, you know, they will promote it through their networks and, you know, off you go. Um, as long as they like the wine. If you, if you want to get into the, the mass market and your treasury wine estate, then you go to big agencies in London and you come up with 19 crimes and you come up with the, you know, the, virtual reality and stuff like that um, so ultimately yeah ultimately it the story will only work if you've got the right distribution channel under it you know we all this is the thing we all like to think we're all captains of our own destiny um, and that you know if you make a really great wine and it's got a really great story that it will take off and unfortunately not unless all of those other things in place If you've got a really outstanding wine, one one thing that is good about the wine world is that um, writers are always looking to be the discoverer of amazing wines. And if there's an amazing wine out there that they can discover, everyone else will discover it as well. You will will go gangbusters, but the story itself won't do that. I, I
1: just want to go back to the storytelling for a minute. I interviewed a couple months back a young woman by the name of Diva Giles who runs a wine bar in New Zealand. So she's 26 and this is this award-winning wine bar and the staff is all really young and they're completely blowing away the notion of millennials and Gen Z don't love wine. And one of the things that she said that has stayed with me is that she lets, she encourages her staff to tell stories about the wine, but she encourages them to tell their stories about the wine. So the example she used was that this one wine that ended up on a list on her list ended up there because she and her partner were young many years ago they, I mean they're still young but they were younger they were in the uk they didn't have a lot of money they saw this wine on a list and they were like, "Oh my God, we've wanted to try this wine we can't really afford it but we're you know we'll just live off gruel for the next week we're going to try this wine and so here she is years later with her own wine bar and they were given an opportunity to put it on the list and they were like, "Hell yeah we're absolutely putting it on the list. And the story that she tells her patrons is the story of getting from being that 18-year-old trying the wine in the UK to getting it on her list. And then it sells like hotcakes and that she has all of her staff members tell their personal stories with the wine. Mm -hmm. And I think this is something that is so... like. Accidentally clever. You know, for her generation, she never thought anything about it. But for our generations, or for anyone that really controls their brand, this notion of letting the story unfold, right? To releasing control of the brand and letting someone in our distribution chain tell a story that may not be our prescribed story can be off putting or
2: confronting. Well actually this is the heart of romance novels. This is why um, romance does really well. I, I had a discussion with some writers and we were talking about what happens if you have an unpleasant character. How do you make um how do you make the reader want to spend time with an unpleasant character? And somebody said something which has stuck with me, which is we love people who love something. So even if even if the character is, you know, obnoxious in all sorts of ways. If the character has a dog that they completely adore, um, we as humans will find that very attractive even while we acknowledge the character is whatever. So I've often said to wine people, instead of talking about passion, talk about why do you love this specific thing because love absolutely communicates itself better than anything else. Now what you're talking about is you're saying... Um, you know, in this wine bar, here's why I love this bottle of wine. And that's one of the most attractive tales that humans can tell each other. It also functions as a form of social proof, which is another layer on top of it. So if you come in and you say, "Um, this wine I've been taught was, you know, this was the family, whatever, it doesn't offer you the same social proof as somebody saying, I chased around this world to to find this wine. And when I found it, it it was completely worth it.
1: Well, it's also telling a story that resonates with us, right? So when a 26-year-old is telling me, a 47-year-old, a story of them being young and in the UK and not necessarily having enough money, but they were going to figure out how to do it, I can sit there and I can remember being that person. Or I can imagine my 20-year-old in some part of the world being that person. And I, I do think that this is a really interesting thing with wine because In some ways, we are so in love with what we do that it's really hard for us to tell stories that resonate with our audience because one of the things that makes wine fabulous right, is this aspirational model that people want to think, oh, I'd love to be able to do that as opposed to, oh, yeah, I've kind of lived through that too.
2: Yeah, so, well, look, my, my sister used this same technique to sell baby clothes on eBay after her, she had twins and after they grew beyond a certain level, she sat down one weekend and, and sold them all. And with every one, she said, um, you know, this was the thing my daughter wore the first time she saw her grandparents and whatever. And she made more money from the clothes than she'd actually paid for them. Um, you know, this, this, um, it's this combination of social proof, of letting you into somebody's life, of of you know evoking empathy and sympathy, and it it does gangbusters. It works really well. It has to be, sincere. it has to be sincere. It has to really be. This wine was meaningful to me.
1: And and yet it's funny. So I'm working on a client project right now where this is exactly the kind of storytelling they have. Like it's so personal. It's so down to earth. And I sit here as a as a marketer and i love working on it because i just think to myself this is the kind of the, this is the kind of thing that the audience is going to love but i also think to myself you know what there're going to be people in their cashment in their in their competition who are going to say oh this is not how we should talk about wine we shouldn't be that personal or that um, sort of casual or, I I don't really want to use the word flippant, but maybe irreverent. And And I do think that that's a huge problem in messaging and storytelling in wine is that our industry, so coming back to the notion of who provides feedback, well, unfortunately in wine, a lot of times it's our neighbors who also own wineries and our competition who, you know, sell wine or whatever, that that their feedback is not trustworthy and it just absolutely so, so much pressure.
2: Yeah. People are terribly afraid of you know, of, of breaking out. Also because when you break out, then you become a pioneer <laughs> and pioneers are the people who may fail. So it's very safe to stick with what's already been done. You know, there's a really great book um, written by Felix Dennis who was a, a publisher and he made an absolute fortune in publishing and he wrote a book called How to Get Rich because he was sick and tired of people writing books on how to get rich who weren't actually rich and he, he was like... I'm rich, I'm going to write the book. And one of the things he says in the book, it's very witty, is he says more money has been lost by people being frightened of what other people will think than, than any other mistake that you can make. He, he says, you know, he sits in boardrooms and people start talking up fear. Well, you know, what will our competitors do and what will our customers think? And, you know, maybe, you know, and as soon as you start, start talking like that, he said you can see the money drain out of the room. Fear is the thing that will um, ensure that you don't make lots of money. Well, I will say there is a, there's this thing about reverence and about wine. There's what we've, you know, the great, the great thing about digital publishing is you have access to analytics. So you can see what works and what doesn't work. And I've been very heartened by a couple of things. One is that, um, over and over and over, you can see that good, well written, interesting stuff. Resonates. People, however busy they are, and however much they haven't got time to spend on your stuff, if it's if it's genuinely interesting, people will read it, even if it's two and a half thousand words long. Um, and the way to get into- yeah,
1: but you know the problem with that, I will say, and. You know, we've stripped intentionally, we've stripped all of the analytics off of the Five Forest site. And there were some reasons for that. Um, Some of it was privacy, but some of it is also, it's so easy to get caught up in your (laughs) own analytics and your own algorithm. So you write two articles that are long form content that people get lots of interest in. And then you're like, oh my God, every article has to be long form content, like whatever, you know, as a marketer, I'm probably hanging myself out to dry by saying this, but Common sense and knowing your audience is going to go a lot further for creating good content than sitting around and looking at analytics, unless you're a content farm. No, I
2: completely agree. It's just analytics has confirmed what we already think, which is that if you can be like just really interesting people will turn up and take notice. And the thing that, that really goes off the chart that, that are our best performing stories are the ones that are funny and entertaining. Um, and that's something that is almost missing completely in wine. Everything that we've done that is, and you don't have to be mean funny, you can just be gently funny or, or you know, um, nice funny, but all of that stuff. Self-deprecating. Well. I mean, well, you know. It works really well.
1: Mm, yeah. So um, our analytics actually show this. I've, I've talked about this a lot, that humor goes so far to to sell, to market, to entertain. And if you actually go in, this is getting super geeky, um, on the research side of it, and then you and I could talk about research for a minute. Um, if you go in and you look at things like the Edelman Trust uh, report that comes out every year or the happiness uh, report that also comes out every year. And you can track, they've been tracking happiness levels around the globe for decades at this point. And you could actually see that at about, I think it was about 2017, we hit like an all-time low for happiness levels. And it it directly... Conversely, ties to the effectiveness of humor, delight, and joy in our copy and our content. And I, you know, this frustrates me to no end because I say we produce a product that is a joyous product. I mean, you know, we're not selling. Tooth pain medication. We're, I mean, maybe we are sometimes, but you know, we're selling wine and we're at every major milestone in a wine drinker's life. And yet we talk about it with this gravitas. I mean, like, like always, always with the gravitas instead of the joy and I, I think delight is overused in marketing, but it really is about joy and delight. And you see good examples of this. I mean, Yellowtail. As much as people loathe Yellowtail, Yellowtail rolls out with absolutely wonderful messaging and and copy and content.
2: Yeah, well, you know the best. Uh, just moving away from marketing, but the best performing stories that we ever. Um, ran was one was um, Paula Sidore, who's a fantastic wine writer, um, wrote stories about disasters that she'd had as a sommelier. And they are disasters. They are really, really big disasters. It was a very, very funny story. Um, And the other one that did really well was uh, the British writer Chris Losh talked about going to hedonism in London, which is the wine store for oligarchs, you know, where money's no object and they'll stock your private plane for you. It's a very funny story. He doesn't mock them at all. He takes them seriously as a wine store and, and whatever, but it's it's really funny and people just love, they love humour and love um, and love a lightness of spirit, which, again, you can see happening in publishing at the moment. The big trends in, in book publishing is um, what's called cosy stories, like cosy mysteries and cosy romance mm. that is um, is all sort of happy ending no matter how seriously, the, the, you know, whatever the seriousness of the subject matter The same
1: thing is happening in the food world, yeah. to be fair, that you see a, a real rise in comfort foods. Um, you've got you know great chefs who are moving toward more traditional or provincial dishes like the notion of things being highfalutin uh is just being toned down more and more and and it would be really interesting to just embrace that as a pattern across consumer behaviors and say okay what does that mean for you know, the fine wine world. What does that mean for the $35,000 spirits bottles? Like, are we actually seeing a real bifurcation of our audiences between the people who do want that, you know, that sort of coziness, that, that comfortable space and people who still fall into the category of the explorer and how do we, how do we meet them in the middle? I actually want to spend a little bit of time
2: talking about research can I just jump in on that? So that's, that's an interesting research one. So um, often the people who are into the, you know, the Veblen goods, the people who buy um, all of those expensive things, they want the comfort wines as well. You know, you're talking to the analysts inside the big companies who track these things, and they know that there are people who, you know, drink Lafitte at their formal lawyer's dinners, and then they go home on Friday night and then drink Barefoot. They can sometimes be the same people.
1: I do want to... Um very briefly touch upon market research because I know when you were at Miningers, you led quite a bit of international market research. Is that correct?
2: Yeah.
1: Is that, Something that you are um, that you are still doing is that information that you find more and more wine brands are interested in receiving. Like I, I noticed that for us in terms of wine research, we don't have a lot of places to go to get uh, quantitative data specific to the wine industry.
2: Oh look it's a serious it's a serious problem there's a huge requirement for research um it's absolutely enormous and even knowing who's got it is something that most people in the wine industry don't know i mean every time we every published time we published a a, a a market analysis or something it would you know we would get our website crashed from the number of people who were visiting i've i've actually been thinking that um there's such a need for it that that you know maybe on the side i should i should I don't know, if anyone's listening to this and i would like to invest, send us some money <laughs> because the, the need for this is huge, particularly when you start going into markets that are complex and opaque, you start going into, you know, where there's language barriers like um, South Korea or um, Japan, where they're great markets, they're really good markets, but, but getting market data can be very, very, very difficult. Um, yeah, and, and, and nobody's really... I'm in. Yeah, well, a lot of- I mean, like, I need that data. I'll do it. Um, yeah, a lot of yeah. the data that's out there is actually not very good. Um, you know, people approach other markets with the assumption that the markets operate the same way as their own market does, and they don't. They don't, they start from that basis. They don't start from the basis of you know what are the key things I need to know about this new market.
1: Well, I find a lot of broad market research doesn't understand the issues that we have with alcohol regulation, shipping, supply chain, all of that. So it's not usable. I, I've set in on a, a number of presentations of data that come from places like Cantar, you know, that are great for if they're talking about honey, but it's not so valuable if they're talking about booze. So that's one challenge. And then the other one is I find that we get a lot of qualitative uh, data in wine. We get a lot of bespoke data, but that may or may not apply to my clients and I I can't comfortably take that as the data upon which I should be founding spending and further research um so yeah I'm right there with you on that
2: some of the mistakes that people make are absolutely colossal so so I'm sitting talking to you inside Germany and if you look at most of the research they'll tell you that Germany is a low cost. Market where the the average bottle of wine is sold at you know whatever it is this year three euros ninety nine four euros ninety nine and that's all based on supermarket data because quite often the people doing the research come out of markets like the UK for example where. Supermarket data is really, really key in finding out about the wine market. But here, what people buy from their local wineries is actually much more important. And that that um, that data isn't captured because, you know, hundreds and hundreds of wineries are not all busy recording what people buy. So it takes experts from places like Geisenheim University to actually untangle it. And when they do, they discover that actually there's a very high percentage of people in Germany, or there's a significant percentage who spend lots of money on wine. But you wouldn't know that if you didn't know who had the right data. And unfortunately, finding that for different markets is quite complex.
1: So the US has a very similar problem. I mean, you just think about the size of it that they roll out with this broad US data that says, you know, 7% of all wine is sold through D to C. And I'm like, okay, well, who's wine? In yep. what regions? Where? Because between um, corporate wine producers who are selling through Walmart and independent wine producers who are selling through their cellar doors and states where you can't sell you know, in various ways, like it's really hard to parse that down and make it valuable information.
2: Yeah, and it, it comes down to this problem of wine is a product that is used very differently from anything. So somebody may be a champagne buyer. And they might also be a yellowtail buyer and they might also be a, um, an investment buyer. You know, all of those things are possible with one consumer. And that's why I've never believed in Amazon because their algorithms work on if you bought, you know, people who bought this also bought this. And that's not how people buy wine. Felicity, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time this morning. we are a delight, Polly. <laughs> Always. And that's a
1: wrap. Thank you for listening. And a great big thank you to Felicity Carter for joining us today. The Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with daily episodes. Tune in each day and discover all our different shows. Be sure to join us next Sunday for another look at the world of wine marketing.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Italian Wine Podcast, brought to you by Vinitali Academy, home of the gold standard of Italian wine education. Do you want to be the next ambassador? Apply online at International.com for courses in London, Austria, and Hong Kong, the 27th to the 29th of July. Remember to subscribe and like Italian Wine Podcast, and catch us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you get your pods. You can also find our entire back catalog of episodes at italianwinepodcast.com.